Section 3, Part 3 A Narrative, etc., etc. The night passed off quietly, and in the morning I was directed to bend a new foretop sail. Every preparation was then made to go outside the reef. About noon, a sail was discovered, and I was ordered aloft to examine and report what description of vessel she was. When I had looked at her through my spyglass, I gave notice that it was a schooner standing westward. The captain asked me if she was a merchant or a man of war, and added, Mind you do not deceive me, for if you do, I will cut off your head. I have already killed several of your countrymen, and take care you do not add yourself to the number. This threat made me apprehensive, and I was determined to examine her closely before I reported, and, having done so, told him she was a merchantman. The pirate was already under way, and she gave chase immediately. I was still at the masthead, and could perceive that the schooner was aware of our intention, and, suspecting us to be a pirate, was altering her course and standing to the north. I informed him of this circumstance, and he abused me for not doing so sooner. When we had passed through the channels and were without the reef, the wind died away, and the captain ordered out the sweeps, and the corsair made great way through the water. The breeze, however, soon freshened, and both vessels stood on under a press of sail. Before dark we were gaining rapidly upon her, but she was still at a great distance, and the captain despaired of reaching her, expressing his apprehension that she would escape, as she would most certainly alter her course in the night. At ten o'clock at night she was out of view, and I was then ordered below. The captain declared, however, that he would stand on that tack until two in the morning, and if she was not then visible, he would alter his course to the east. The fatigue I had undergone by being tossed to and fro in the tops made me sleep soundly, and I did not awake till called in the morning. When I came on deck I found all at a loss to know whereabouts they were. The whole crew had been intoxicated, no light had been in the binnacle, and no log had been thrown. No one, therefore, knew what the ship had been doing through the night, or what sail had been set. In this dilemma I was called upon to give the captain information as to the bearings of the harbor from which we had sailed the preceding day. I replied that it was impossible for me to inform him exactly, and was threatened with instant massacre if I did not. I then informed him, if he would wait till noon, I would endeavor to do so, and the same threat was repeated in case of failure. It was a fortunate event for me that at this time the sun was in distance with the moon, and the sky being remarkably clear, the sea smooth, and the schooner making very little way, I had an opportunity, at about nine o'clock, to take a good lunar observation. After I had completed taking the sights, which I was compelled to do above, as no one on board understood navigation, I made my calculations, and at noon obtained the true latitude by a good observation of the sun's altitude. To my great astonishment I found that we were about twenty leagues to the west-northwest of Cape Bonavesta a distance of two hundred miles to the westward of where I had imagined we were. 
the moment the captain perceived that i had finished operations he asked the situation of the vessel which i informed him he then ordered me to direct the helmsman and trim the sails according to the course which we ought to steer having obeyed this order he asked me when we should see land and i told him in the afternoon if the breeze was favorable he seemed to have some doubt and declared with an oath he would punish me if we did not the breeze in the meantime freshened and came more in our favor and all appeared anxious to prove the truth of my information and be convinced of my skill as a navigator but no one was more anxious than myself for the least error in my calculation devoted me to destruction and i trembled for the consequences at four in the afternoon to my great joy the men on the lookout called land and the coast pilot complimented me on my skill but the captain only abused me you rascal you pretended not to know where the vessel was but you see you cannot deceive me and i would advise you not to attempt it the pilot remarked that the current must have been running very strong a very material error seems to exist in the charts as well as the books of instructions on the subject of this current those which i have seen agree in stating that it runs to the eastward whereas i have frequently found it to run westward at the rate of three knots off cape roman the bay of onda the camoeners and at some distance from the land cape bonavesta too is erroneously laid down as high and mountainous whereas the land about it is not more than eighteen feet from the surface of the ocean and that which is in general mistaken for it lies a great way to the interior of the island and six leagues to the eastward of the cape the colorados so little known and so much dreaded by mariners is also erroneously laid down an error which frequently occasions a serious loss of lives and property the north side of this reef may be approached without the smallest danger in the thickest darkness by the precautionary throw of the lead as the soundings gradually decrease from the depth of fifty fathoms till you come into three but frequently there is no dependence to be placed upon it for at the distance of six yards there may not be more than three feet of water within the reef are a number of fine bays and inlets capable of containing a large fleet the whole coast indeed abounds with bays creeks and inlets little known to european navigators that seem as if formed by nature for the reception and protection of those sanguinary hordes while i had the misfortune of being among those miscreants i have been in several instances in those places within musket-shot of british and american men-of-war and could plainly perceive the men in their tops from the masthead of the corsair without being perceived by them the vessel being completely screened from observation by the trees the coast pilot on board the corsair had certainly a very intimate knowledge of the whole coast and knew every bay and inlet in it and indeed boasted that that knowledge had for years been their protection and assisted them in their depredations some had according to their own confession been seven or eight years at this lawless occupation the corsair pursued her course along the land to the eastward till dusk and then cast anchor at daylight on the following morning she again made sail for the harbor which she did not reach till eleven 
in consequence of the lightness of the wind. In the afternoon, a boat full of men appeared coming towards the schooner, which, upon examination, was found to contain some of the chief mate's party. No sooner was this known than the captain declared he would kill them all, and ordered thirty muskets to be loaded and brought on deck. When the boat was about two hundred yards from the schooner, the men ceased rowing and held up a white handkerchief for a signal, as if doubtful of their safety, which was answered by a similar one from on board, and they again advanced. When within reach of the musketry, the dreadful order of fire was given. Five of the men fell in the boat. The sixth leaped over and began to swim, after whom a boat was dispatched. On his being brought on board, the captain told him the accusation that was against him and his party, and threatened him with a cruel and lingering death if he did not confess the whole truth. In vain did he declare his innocence and ignorance of any plot. The ruffian was resolved to glut his vengeance, and ordered him to be stripped and exposed naked, wounded and bleeding as he was, to the scorching fervor of a July sun the July sun of a tropical climate. The feelings of humanity got the better of my caution, and I entreated the captain not to torture the poor wretch in that dreadful manner, declaring that I firmly believed him innocent, for had he been guilty, torture and terror would have wrung a confession from him. In vain I pleaded. In vain I represented the inhumanity of punishing a poor wretch, in all probability innocent of the crime laid to his charge. He was deaf to my entreaties, and threatened me with vengeance for my interference, declaring that he had not done half that he intended to do. Having said this, he turned to the man, told him that he should be killed, and therefore advised him to prepare for death, or confess himself to any of the crew whom I chose to call aside for that purpose. The man persisted in his plea of innocence, declared that he had nothing to confess, and entreated them all to spare his life. They paid no attention to his assertions, but, by the order of the captain, the man was put into the boat, pinioned and lashed in the stern, and five of the crew were directed to arm themselves with pistols and muskets, and to go in her. The captain then ordered me to go with them, savagely remarking that I should now see how he punished such rascals, and giving directions to the boat's crew to row for three hours backwards and forwards through a narrow creek formed by a desert island and the island of Cuba. "'I will see,' cried he, exultingly, "'whether the mosquitoes and the sandflies will not make him confess.' Prior to our leaving the schooner, the thermometer was above ninety degrees in the shade." and the poor wretch was now exposed naked to the full heat of the sun. In this state we took him to the channel, one side of which was bordered by swamps full of mangrove trees, and swarming with the venomous insects before mentioned. We had scarcely been half an hour in this place when the miserable victim was distracted with pain. His body began to swell, and he appeared one complete blister from head to foot. Often in the agony of his torments did he implore them to end his existence and release him from his misery, but the inhuman wretches only imitated his cries and mocked and laughed at him. 
in a very short time, from the effects of the solar heat and the stings of the mosquitoes and sand-flies, his face had become so swollen that not a feature was distinguishable. His voice began to fail, and his articulation was no longer distinct. I had long suspected that the whole story of the conspiracy was a wicked and artful fabrication, and the constancy with which this unfortunate being underwent these tortures served to confirm my suspicions. I resolved, therefore, to hazard my interference, and, after much entreaty and persuasion, prevailed upon them to endeavour to mitigate his sufferings and to let the poor wretch die in peace, as the injuries which he had already sustained were sufficient of themselves to occasion death. At first they hesitated, but after consulting for some time among themselves, they consented to go to the other side of the island, where they would be secured from observation, and untie him and put something over him. When we had reached that place, we lay upon our oars and set him loose. But the moment he felt the fresh sea-breeze, he fainted away. His appearance at this time was no longer human, and my heart bled at seeing a fellow-creature thus tormented. When our time was expired, we again tied him as before to prevent the fury of the captain for our lenity, and once more pulled for the passage on our way to the vessel. On our arrival, his appearance was the source of merriment to all on board, and the captain asked if he had made any confession. An answer in the negative gave him evident disappointment, and he inquired of me whether I could cure him. I told him he was dying. "'Then he shall have some more of it before he dies,' cried the monster, and directed the boat to be moored within musket-shot in the bay. This having been done, he ordered six of the crew to fire at him. The man fell, and the boat was ordered alongside. The poor wretch had only fainted, and when they perceived that he breathed, a pig of iron was fastened round his neck, and he was thrown into the sea. Thus ended a tragedy which, for the miseries inflicted on the victim, and for the wanton and barbarous depravity of his fiend-like tormentors, never, perhaps, had its equal. The inhuman wretches who had been the chief participators in this horrid deed seemed to regard it as an everyday occurrence. The guitar tinkled and the song went round, as if nothing had happened, and the torments which their victim had just undergone, and the cries that he had uttered, seemed to form the subject of their jests, and to be echoed in their barbarous mirth. At nine o'clock at night I was ordered below, as usual, but the image of what had occurred haunted my slumbers, and my sleep was broken by constant apprehensions of assassination. Morning brought round my appointed task of attending the sick, after which I was ordered to make a new gaff topsail. I went aloft and took the measure of the sail, and then informed the captain that it would be necessary to take the canvas on shore to cut it out. The very mention of the shore excited his fury, and he immediately accused me of intending to escape, observing that any endeavour would be fruitless, as he could have me apprehended in less than two hours after I should go. I told him I had merely said so with a view of expediting the work, and then proceeded to cut out the canvas upon deck in the best manner I could, using all diligence in making the sail. 
My exertions seemed to please him, and he frequently addressed me in a cheerful manner. Our attention was now excited by a cry of, A sail! A sail! from the masthead, and I was driven up aloft with the usual threat to reconnoiter while the vessel got under way. I informed them that she was a merchant brig, and orders were given to go in chase immediately, the pilot undertaking to take her through the channels while I was called down and consulted as to the best mode of fighting in case she should resist. The corsair, having gained on the brig, fired a gun and hoisted Spanish colors, which the other answered by heaving to and displaying the English ensign. From the painted ports and figurehead of the brig, the pirate began to suspect that she was a man of war, and was fearful of approaching any nearer. He therefore ordered the foretopsail to be laid aback, and said that he should send the boat to board her under my directions. This intimation greatly alarmed me, and I pointed out to him the perils I should run in obeying his orders, and that, should I be captured hereafter, I should assuredly suffer an ignominious death. "'And what are you, sir?' cried he ferociously, "'that you should not suffer as well as myself. "'The schooner shall never be captured, "'for when I can no longer defend her, I shall blow her up. "'If you do not instantly go, I will shoot you.' "'I told him that he might shoot me if he pleased, "'but that I would not commit an act "'that might subject me and my family to disgrace.' Seeing me resolute and inclined to dispute his authority, he ordered his crew to blindfold me and carry me forward, and told me to prepare myself for death. I was carried as he had directed, and he then came to me and asked me if I was prepared. I answered firmly, yes. He then left me, and immediately a volley of musketry was fired, but evidently only with a view to frighten me. The captain immediately came up to me and asked if I was not desperately wounded. I answered I was not, but begged if it was his intention to destroy me, to do it at once and not trifle with me as I preferred death to disgrace and ignominy. He then gave directions that I should be taken and lashed to the mainmast, and the bandage removed from my eyes. This order was quickly obeyed by his myrmidons. As soon as I was fastened to the mast, the captain cut up a number of cartridges and placed the powder round me on the deck, with a train to it, and gave orders for the cook to light a match and send it aft. He then repeated his order and asked if I would obey him. I persisted in my refusal, and, without any further hesitation, he communicated the fire to the powder. The explosion deprived me of my senses and stunned me for the moment, but I soon recovered to undergo the most horrid torture. The flames had caught my clothes which were blazing round me, and my hands were so pinioned that I could not relieve myself. I begged them for God's sake to dispatch me at once, but they only laughed at me, and the captain, tauntingly, asked me if I would obey him now. The excruciating agony in which I was extorted my acquiescence, and I was ordered to be released, but I fainted before that could be done. When I recovered my senses, I found myself stretched on a mattress in the cabin, and in the most dreadful pain. In the frenzy and delirium of the moment, 
I meditated self-destruction, but no weapons were near me, and the shattered state of my legs did not allow me to seek any. The steward was below, and I begged him to lend me his knife, but he suspected my intention, and informed the captain, who descended in a fury. "'You want to kill yourself, young man, I understand,' cried he. "'But I do not mean that you should die yet. I shall blow you up again.' for I see it is the only way to make you obey me. He then ordered them to keep a watch over me and help me to sit up and dress my wounds. I found my legs dreadfully injured, the flesh lacerated, and the bone in some parts laid bare, and by this time large blisters had risen on various parts of my body. I asked for a sheet to cover me and a pillow for my head, and the captain, who now seemed to relent, ordered the steward to give me all that I required. I begged that the medicine chest might be placed near me, which they did, and I seized that opportunity of swallowing the contents of a small vial of laudanum, about a hundred and thirty drops, hoping that I should wake no more in this world. The cook, who seemed to pity and feel for my sufferings, now brought me a little arrowroot and wine, and made up my bed for me. I asked him where the Corsair was, and he told me in the harbor at anchor. I expressed my surprise at the circumstance, when he informed me the captain was so convinced that the brig was a man of war, and that I had meant to decoy them to be taken, that he was afraid to attack, and had returned into harbor shortly after I was brought down below. From this poor fellow I received a great deal of kindness, and he seemed possessed of much humanity. The captain, said he, bending over me with a look of compassion, is a very bad man, and has killed more than twenty people with his own hand, in cool blood, and he would kill you too, were he not in want of your services. He then cautioned me to appear cheerful and satisfied at all times, and that then they would treat me well. He also told me that he would prepare any little thing for me that I might want, and attend me by day and by night, and, with this kind assurance, left me to my repose. I now began to feel the soporiferous effects of the laudanum, and, laying myself down upon my mattress, commended my soul into the hands of the God who gave it, beseeching him to forgive me for the act I had committed, and resign myself, as I thought, into the arms of death. I soon fell into a profound sleep, which lasted the whole night, and in the morning they found such difficulty to arouse me that they imagined I had poisoned myself and was dead. The captain accused me of having done so, and threatened me with a second torturing if I ever made another attempt. I told him I had merely taken some opiate medicine to render me insensible to the pain I suffered, and that it had taken an unusually powerful effect upon me. He then asked me if I could attend to the sick. I said that I would endeavor to do so, but upon attempting to rise, I found my strength fail, and my limbs so stiff and in such a state, that I began to think that I had lost their use. A mattress was, however, placed under me to help me to sit up, and the medicine chest placed by my side, and in this manner, although it put me to excruciating agony, I began to perform my task. 
Having attended to the sick, I next dressed my own wounds, which had assumed a dangerous appearance. While thus occupied below, the master of a coasting schooner brought intelligence that the Zephyr had arrived at the Havana, and that all the circumstances of her capture and plunder had been made known. Frantic at this information, he rushed into the cabin. See, cried he, what dependence can be placed on your countrymen? That old rascal has gone to the Havana and broken a solemn promise. But for this I should not care, had he told the truth. He has told the authorities there that I have plundered him of specie to the amount of fifteen hundred pounds sterling, whereas I did not obtain half that amount. He has said also that I maltreated the children, and he must have known that it was only on their account that I did not destroy the vessel, but allowed him to proceed on his voyage. But this will be a lesson to me not to trust the English again, for I now find them as treacherous as the Americans. This he uttered all in a breath, and then paused as if considering something. A malignant scowl passed over his face, and he proceeded. He thinks he is out of my reach, but mark me, if he remains a few days longer at the Havana, I shall never live to see England. I have three or four already on the watch to assassinate him. They must be new to the trade, or it would have been done ere this. But there is one on board who will soon accomplish it, a man who has already dispatched several. I shall send him there in an hour, and to make sure of his performing it, I will give him ten doubloons for the deed. Nay, should he be fortunate enough to escape this time, I may take him again at some other, and then I will tie him to a tree in the forest and let him starve. During this conversation the villain had been preparing himself, and now announced that he was ready to proceed on his sanguinary mission. The boat was then ordered to put him on shore, where he was to procure a horse and direct his course to the Havana, and the savage entered it with an air of exultation, and with loud promises of his performing his task faithfully. The hope of revenge seemed to have calmed his turbulence, and he began asking me how soon I should be able to proceed with the sail, and to go up aloft, adding that my own foolish obstinacy had occasioned all my sufferings. I told him that I was very ill, and could not then attempt it, to which he coolly answered that he was anxious to have the vessel completely fitted with new sails, and hoped that I should be able to do so very soon. He then turned about and left the cabin. The whole schooner's company now went to their evening meal, and, as was usual, to drink, play the guitar, and carouse. Their merriment was, however, soon interrupted by the dashing of approaching oars. They instantly flew to quarters and made every preparation for acting on the defense, and I was dragged on deck, wounded as I was, to hail the boat in English. Immediately on my doing so, the boat stopped and I repeated the hail, but they did not answer, upon which the captain called to them in Spanish. His voice was soon recognized, and they came alongside. All were eager to learn the object of their visit, and rapid in their inquiries. They then informed the captain that a boat containing some more of the chief mate's party had arrived, and, having heard of the fate of their associates, had vowed revenge 
For this purpose they had gone in pursuit of the man who had been just set on shore, of whose arrival they were informed, and had, when they left, followed him towards the magistrate's house, where he had gone to procure a pass for his journey. They added that if he wished to preserve the man's life, he must lose no time in sending him assistance. A general panic seemed to have seized the whole crew at this intelligence, and no one seemed inclined to go upon this hazardous enterprise. The captain now upbraided, now threatened, and now abused them by turns, but with no visible effect, and was on the point of abandoning his emissary to his fate, when one man, apparently bolder than the rest, but evidently with hesitation, offered his services, and even declared his resolution to perish in the attempt. This example had the desired effect, and nine more stepped forward. They were hastily supplied with arms and ammunition, and dispatched on shore, strictly charged by the captain to give the assailants no quarter. When this expedition was dispatched, the pirate asked me whether, if I had been well, I would have volunteered to rescue Stromita, for so the man was called. Wishing for an opportunity to lull his suspicions against me, I answered in the affirmative, adding at the same time that he ought to be on his guard, for this report might have been a stratagem to withdraw part of the crew in order to attack the schooner more easily. The hint staggered him. He confessed the idea had never occurred to him, and thanked me for my precautionary advice, adding, I see now that necessity is the best teacher, and I shall, at last, make something of you. I was then sent below again, and the captain proceeded to take measures to guard against surprise. A watch was set on deck, and everyone lay down with his arms by his side. All was silence and watchful anxiety till midnight, when the boat returned with only five of the men. These informed the captain that, on the beach, they had met a servant dispatched by the magistrate, who informed them that Stromeda was a prisoner, and that the captors had vowed to put him to death, and bade them hasten to his rescue. The party had, on hearing this, taken a circuitous route through the wood, and, having eluded the scouts of the chief mate's gang, had surprised four of them playing at cards and drinking under a tree. Having secured these, they proceeded to the magistrate's residence, and, firing through the doors and windows, discharged their blunderbusses into the house, regardless of who might be within, whether friend or foe, and had, in doing so, unfortunately wounded the magistrate himself. Stromeda they found bound hand and foot, lying on the floor, but as he had not been injured, and having loosed him, he proceeded on his journey. Two of the chief mate's party, they said, had been killed. Two more were prisoners, and two, who were acting as scouts, perceiving what had happened, had escaped after firing their muskets and wounding one of the corsair's crew. They concluded this long narration with an earnest request on the part of the magistrate and wounded man that I might be instantly dispatched to dress their wounds, as there was no medical man near them. I was, in consequence, ordered to prepare for my new task as quick as possible. In vain did I remonstrate on the cruelty of the measure, and try to move their pity by showing them the mangled and deplorable state in which I was. 
I was told, in reply, that as much care as possible should be taken not to hurt me in moving, but that go I must. Seeing them resolved, I prepared to comply. A mattress stretched on one of the hatches was placed in the boat, and I was lowered down upon it, and the party who had charge of me, having received orders to be careful and gentle in their usage, shoved off the boat and rowed towards shore. End of section 3 Part 3